I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. I'm Rick Kelly. And we love to watch. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a boomer. Pete. Hi. Hey, Brick. Hey. We're feeling good, right? <clears throat> Definitely. I'm feeling, I'm feeling great. You know what? I'm just going to get into it. So, where we love to watch. <laughs> we pick a theme. We do movies over the course of that month around the theme. And if we remember, we compare and contrast. It's a new month on We Love to Watch. It's March. Uh, it's called Who Needs a Hug Month. And uh, the impetus for this month was that 2020 was a really rough year. And uh, Peter and I are both fond of a lot of movies. And actually, a lot of them that we've talked about in this show in some of our end-of-year best-of episodes that kind of um, are both joyful but definitely kind of overwhelm you emotionally like it leaves you on a good note it's not like you're watching like fucking the accused or some shit um but or 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 sophie's choice or some other you know movie that is uh you know sad and makes you cry for uh for sad reasons but but movies that kind of reaffirm your faith in humanity and so uh, there was a lot of recent ones that peter and i have been wanting to do on this show for a while that we talked about stuff like brigsby bear which we're going to do next week uh hunt for the wilder people which we're going to do this month um inside out we'll be wrapping up the month with movies that like Definitely, uh, I, I don't even like saying this sarcastically because I really hate it as a phrase, but get you in the feels. Um, but, uh, you know, and kind of like, uh, you know, we talked about a lot on It's a Wonderful Life. It's just a movie that almost feels like a catharsis has been reached by the time that you're done with it and you feel good and your faith is reaffirmed uh, in humanity. And it made sense as we were saying, OK, if we're going to do a month like that to kind of start with, I think, a movie that a lot of people think about as that cultural touch point, which is 1989's uh, Field of Dreams. It is a movie that is known for, uh, you know, very like stupid patriarchal like it's it's a movie it's okay for for guys to cry at and stuff like that which is which is dumb that's a bad ad you'd have anyone can cry yeah. in the movie all the genders and, can and cry in all the movies yeah but but it is but i do think it does touch on something fundamental and even seeing it as a kid uh you know it was an overwhelming experience for me and i've uh, it's a movie that uh, i still consider a favorite that i watch occasionally through the year so you know when we're talking about the modern who needs a hug at the end of this movie movie, Field of Dreams made a lot of sense. Um, now, there's some things I didn't know when we programmed this month that I, I have some good intel on now. First, I know that uh, while Peter had seen the other three movies and generally liked them that we we're going to talk about this month, I didn't know that he hadn't seen Field of Dreams. It was one of the reasons I was excited about doing it is because I had never seen it. And I do agree with Aaron that it's sort of, um, well, it's not the ur text of feeling good. Um, no. It is, it is a great place Modern. to start as like yeah. one of the most agreed on movies that like if, if it doesn't make uh, you have a good happy cry, it makes like 
your dad or your mom have a good happy cry, right? Yeah. And, you know, and, and uh, you know, it's it's a wonderful life, maybe one of the Urtexes for us, but like uh, Roger Ebert in his four-star review of this movie in 1989, like said, this feels like a movie that Jimmy Stewart and Frank Camper would have made. It has that same level of magical realism, faith in humanity, and a movie where kind of everything ends up okay for everyone uh, at the end in an emotionally satisfying way. Uh, so even though we're going to be talking about a bunch of super recent stuff that is that has affected uh, us that way uh, for the rest of the month, this seemed like a good place to sp- start. Plus, uh, it, it gave uh, us a chance to have Rick back on. Rick has, over the last 12 months, Rick Kelly, longtime guest of the show. I don't know how many because I didn't want to go back and, and, uh, and count. Since the early uh, days, though. Yeah. Early days. Since sure. the early days. He, yeah, you were on a couple in our first year, too. And we've kind of weirdly been doing uh, sequels to your episodes. We did uh, – one of the first episodes that you were on was the Nosferatu silent one. We did the, the Herzog. Yep. Nosferatu Bookends. Uh, in this summer. Uh, we did Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Right. Uh, in the first six months of our show that you were a guest on. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did Three Musketeers, which for all intents and purposes is an attempt to make a sequel to that movie. Uh <laughs> thematically aesthetically and everything else very unsuccessfully and so when i looked at this roster and saw kevin costner on it we had a lot of fun talking about kevin costner and the roundhead prince of thieves it was like you know it'd be fun to have rick back on for that episode so here we have peter picking a movie that i was under the impression that he had seen and liked and was on board for rick who we know is a big old uh k fan uh, huge huge k stan the k hole uh and yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> I, I, yeah, cost, cost boss. He thinks the cost is the boss. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, in some of the pre-show texting, I've learned that in our attempt to have a feel-good month, I'm about to feel relatively bad <laughs> in this episode. And I apologize as I went through Letterboxd and saw people's ratings. We have a lot of guests that rated this five stars. So if you're listening to this and you're like, I could have been on that episode. I also am affected by this movie. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, These were all and, my and choices, a, and they were made wrong. stuck with me. Yeah, um, yeah. P- Pete's hard to get rid of, but unfortunately, I accidentally brought someone into the the Pete side of the den um, <laughs> instead of the Aaron side of the Meow. den. And so, if you're listening and thinking you would have said stuff better, you know, call me after the show. See, maybe we can record another one. <laughs> I don't know, just just me and whoever you are. Uh, but uh, really but setting yeah, us up for for um, what's the term failure? Mm. Well, I'm yeah. trying to emotionally prepare myself right i thought <laughs> a lot of the texts were hurtful and they made me <laughs> defensive. Look, we, we have not come here to bury kevin costner in his field of dreams we you know we're <laughs> we're, we're here to, yeah. to, to to discuss the merits of the film and, and talk about yeah. yeah yeah you're I, yeah i know who you are you're you're clearly you're from the bank <laughs> yeah the brother-in-law is really kind of like my he's he's my he serves as my stand-in in the film <laughs> except, except he, except he kills the kid and never sees the ball players and forecloses on them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. With his fatal uh, hot dog. So, like, that was a long intro to set myself up that you guys are the villains of this podcast. Right. I know, and I would like to undermine that. We did a bad movie month in December. <laughs> okay. This is not a continuing thread of cynicism. This is actually 
uh, us recalibrating to be the um, earnest dorks that we are. But I do think it's I do think it's a movie that's like a good starting point, even if I wasn't a huge fan of it. It didn't quite click for me. Uh, we're going to be coming, I, or at least I, I'm going to be coming from, Rick, Rick can do whatever he wants. He's the guest. He, he's a wild man. You can't tell me what yeah. to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will not be coming in from the perspective of this is a piece of shit garbage movie because I don't think that. I'll be coming in from the perspective of, of uh, Aaron, please explain why this movie means so much to you. That's fine. I'm going to let my pettiness take over. <laughs> nine minutes in, and nine minutes in, and, and the battle lines have been drawn. Rick and I thought we were just having a nice cash episode. <laughs> you guys have hurt me, and I'm going to retaliate. Um, <laughs> no, what I want to say is let, let's let Rick introduce himself besides the field of dreams hater. Rick, how would people know you from the show? Uh, well, they would know me from those previous uh, episodes you mentioned. They might know me from film writing on Luddite Robot, which I haven't done in a while, but uh, that's probably the two, the two, my two claims to fame. This is one of them, sadly. <laughs> sadly? So, uh, sorry. I mean, I appreciate very much the opportunity to, to be on your show and talk about these films. Yeah, that's better. That's <laughs> better. <laughs> 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 back on track. Yeah. derailed us. <laughs> How did I derail? I, I think I'm just trying to give the listeners what they want, which is crucifixion. <laughs> <laughs> so what is so? OK, so do we want to start with everyone's uh, preconceptions of what this movie is or their their history with it? Is that a good place to start? Yeah, I think that's a good place to start. I also think it's funny. And this just tells you a little bit of like what age I saw this movie and how I view this movie. Um, I get there's a little bit of nostalgia and I will um, I will drop a little bit the the, the, the hurt villain persona uh, here because because like I also rec- like there's a whole part of this movie that like as a as an adult and and recognizing like America's history with uh, baseball and let's say I don't know racism that uh, that there is definitely some choices in making Terrence Mann uh, a black person and a civil rights icon where in the book it was J D Solinger um, I think is is good in the sense that that would have been interesting to talk about more especially as it relates to baseball which famously had the Negro leagues and didn't allow people of color to play uh, until Jackie Robinson and even then there was like teams like the Boston Red Sox that held on against letting any black people play on their teams for a long period of time so the fact that you you have James Earl Jones uh, playing a, playing a basically a civil rights uh, writer and icon who is in love with the 1920s Black Sox or is like very impressed with them is uh, I can understand why you would like baseball. He talks about liking Jackie Robinson, Brooklyn Dodgers and Emmett's Field, which you know tracks with the Jackie Robinson. But there definitely are some things that I think with a uh, with a modern lens that definitely looks a little bit like uh, capitalizing on the idea of a civil rights icon and Jackie Robinson's legacy while ignoring uh, a huge part of baseball's uh, historical racism uh, and make it like and making it the pastime for all Americans. So th- that's worth talking about later. I definitely see that as a as a as a as a big flaw of the movie, and I get that like. My nostalgia and my feels for this movie overcome some, I think, what would be extremely legitimate criticisms of it. And also, I'll tell you, Peter, when I found out that you hadn't seen it, you didn't like it. I hadn't watched it yet. Uh, And then I went to watch it. And I did that thing that um, where, like, you you guys know the movie Fight Club, right? Yes. 
so, fans. I have a Tyler Durden tattoo on my... Oh, that's awesome. I just have a poster in my bedroom. Yeah, me too. I mean, I used to really love it. But there's a part of that movie that I do feel like rings true when it comes to showing movies to people that aren't as into them or you recognize. There's the part where he's going to all the support groups and pretending to have the diseases and crying. And then when Marla Sanger's there, he he starts noticing all the things he's doing to pretend. And it's like his, you know, her lie reflected my, my lie and I couldn't really enjoy myself anymore Mm -hmm. and i think when you show a movie that you love to people that aren't into it i feel that that happens too where you're like you recognize they don't like it and so you start looking at it from the perspective of well did they not like this part i guess i could see why they (laughs) yeah like you know i thought you had already watched it i would not have told you what i thought of it until if if you had already seen it because i i know exactly what you're talking about yeah, so I still came down really positive, and I, I don't think you ruined it by saying that, and um, but or anything like that. But like, I you know I just recognize that this is a movie I've seen many many times, and watching it from a critical perspective for the show. So while I may uh, slip back into the character of you guys hating uh, love and happiness and humanity and joy, um, I do get that if this Peter was your first time seeing it. <laughs> Especially um, having seen a lot of better versions of this kind of thing, it may not impact you the same way. Uh, Rick, assuming this wasn't your first time seeing it, but I'm interested in uh, your history with it uh, or if you saw it as a kid or if you used to have a fondness for it and it's devolved or or where you're at with it. I did see it as a kid. Um, I actually – I really liked – I did like sports movies, but this was not one of the – the big ones for me. Um, yeah. I really liked The Natural when I was like nine years old. Uh, Robert Redford shooting out the lights, all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, so I liked some other ones um, growing up. But I saw this and I remembered it fondly. Um, but I hadn't seen it for literally 30 years uh, or more. So um, – or not 30. What it, I haven't seen it for a very long time. And, uh, it did come out 32 years ago now. Yeah, so I mean, that, that's about right, I guess. But I don't I think I saw it in the theater, though. In any case, um, didn't watch it a lot. And uh, I was shocked, like Peter was, to discover that the Field of Dreams is constructed very, very early in the film. <laughs> I, I thought that the whole movie was about the construction of the Field of Dreams, and it's not. So that was a big revelation to me. So this was almost like a... Like, it all clicked back in as I was watching it, but it was not um, a first viewing. It was like a quasi-first viewing in some ways. Yeah, I mean, they they definitely use good old-fashioned Iowa union labor because they, <laughs> they get that thing up in yeah. a couple days. Yeah. Uh, and this I think what you're referring to is a similar rule we use for Spooktober, that it counts as a first-time watch if it was before junior high, basically. Right. Um, because like you're just not you're not even close to the same person you were back then and like how you process art is just pro- it might be completely inverted um and yeah so like i i think you know for all intents and purposes it was our first time viewing it i probably saw you know i probably saw bits and pieces of it on tv um growing up mm-hmm. i uh but i I really growing up was never super into sports at all. Um, surprising for a white guy that runs a movie podcast. Um, but I did and was mostly into Asian violent cinema. As a teenager. <laughs> that was that was uh, like, I get it. You watched the newest Takashi Miki and then you ran track, right? <laughs> 
That was uh, the end of junior high. By then, I had already given up and decided football was stupid. Um, but I, you know, I was somebody, though, that grew up like when there was an opportunity to go to a baseball game um, or occasionally go to a football game, I would jump at it because yeah. I always found live sports and going to these big events like very fun and, and really um, it, it could hold my attention in that arena, uh, which I know is also sort of a cliched thing like mm-hmm. uh, that's somewhat like. I like baseball, but only when I'm there. Watching on TV is boring, but, like, I like baseball, like, watching it when I'm there. But on TV, it's very boring. Um, <laughs> yeah, and oc- occasion- Occasionally, I'll get into uh, watching uh, specific games. Like, you know, I'm I'm technically on paper a Cubs fan and a Padres fan because I've been to a bunch of Cubs games and Padres games. And when they're doing really well, sometimes it's fun to, like, jump on the bandwagon for a little bit. But largely, I'm just not a baseball guy, and sports movies didn't really like get me much as a kid. So I, when I, I wasn't really interested in watching this as a kid, and it's yeah, it, it, and my my dad wasn't super like I don't think my dad like was like particularly into it. Um, my dad was more of a sci-fi nerd, which I think maybe explains the beginning of this rant. Um, and uh, yeah, so like I, I I saw it essentially with fresh eyes for this time, and. I, so I didn't have childhood nostalgia for the film itself as an object. I also don't have much nostalgia for baseball or you know playing sports when I was a kid. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't have much of that. Um, I don't have um, any particular like affinity for the '60s because I feel like in the past you know four or five years uh, that has been smashed out of me by actually reading about the sixties. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, 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 it was, it was hard for me to find something to grip onto and get attached. And if you don't get attached to sort of, if you don't get attached to the baseball stuff, you don't get attached to the, some of the like sixties counterculture stuff. If you don't get attached to Kevin Costner as a performer, um, I, I, I think it's hard to uh, make it through this film with, with and get to the moment, uh, the climactic moment where, you know, everybody, everybody uh, cries at or, you know, at least the, 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 the joke or the stereotype is, you know, the movie that makes dads cry to get to that mm-hmm. moment. Um, I felt like I was only like a quarter of the way there. I, I, I was sort of getting dragged along from scene to yeah. scene. <laughs> I didn't so- hate the movie. I, I definitely have like legitimate complaints with with it. We'll get to that, but like that's kind of where where I'm coming from. Just to start off, and we'll see if as we go, I can sort of get get pitched on why. Get, you guys hear that? You hear that? <laughs> that's good. Uh, pitched on why it's a uh, why it's it, it's something more life affirming than than you know it it did for me. Well, great. You definitely you definitely used the pun correctly. So for someone that doesn't know sports, uh, play ball. Great. All good. Uh, you know, instead, when we take our pee break, we'll call it our seventh inning stretch. Ah, good. It'll be great. Uh, no, so I think there's a lot to kind of probably pull out of what you discussed there. It's interesting that both uh, you and Rick both sent me something about this being a baseball movie. And that, well, you didn't really like it. And you're like, well, I don't like sports movies. So I feel like that's a, that's a bad starting place for this movie. And... Rick, you sent the review that you found about it being the best baseball ghost movie or whatever that's ever existed. And – but it's two two 2.5 stars, not as good as Die Hard. Um, it's, it's a good review. <laughs> uh-huh. But it's funny. Like, so a couple things there. I, I It's 
I never think of this as a baseball or a sports movie. Like that is definitely the dressing <clears throat> that it's. Um, I mean, it definitely. Well, is. But they they also ne- like, they never play baseball or sports, so there's that. Yeah, I mean, a little bit they do. They like throw a ball. Yeah, and there's a little bit of, of that. Yeah, and I guess that's why I never like. I don't think about it in the way I think of like, you know, even like other Kevin Costner sports movies from the late '80s, like Bull Durham and stuff like that, or you know, uh, uh, The Natural, or all. You know, I just don't because it's not really, like it's about a love of something. In this case, baseball is that example of like a father and a son that both ultimately share a passion for the same thing. I think that like you could make this movie about, you know, a love of science fiction or a love of anything else. And it, it probably doesn't have the clear iconography or, or beats that this one is able to do with doing baseball. But I guess that's why uh, I, I just don't see it so much as a sports or a baseball movie as much as I see it about like a story about like, you know, uh, parents and, and fathers and sons and just a general magical, magical realism setting. Um, now, having said that, I, uh, I don't I'm not as into sports as I used to be, mainly because as I had kids, stuff had to go out the window of what I wanted to devote my time to and uh, watching, say, uh, a day of football or a day of baseball or whatever else is a pretty easy chuck that out the window thing. Um, And then I had more time in the bleachers than in the dugout. Yep, that's exactly right. But then also, even my like, even my like, watching the playoffs of football went away like three or four years ago. I actually finally started tuning out of the Super Bowl, even when my favorite team was in a couple years ago, uh, just due to uh, uh, hippie libby liberal stuff about or lefty stuff about uh, the way they've uh, treated some of their players in a lot of different capacities. Anyways, I don't want to get into that. Uh, but the one sport that I still ever made somewhat connected to is baseball, which was definitely my favorite sport growing up. I played it. I wasn't that very good at it, but I always had a really good time playing it. I love movies about it. I still remember what my first glove and my first bat looked like. Mm. Uh, when I was in Louisville, I went to the Louisville Slugger uh, uh, factory where they make them all. I went on a tour. Like, I, you know, I'm a huge Cubs fan. I played for the Little League Cubs. I went to, my uncle used to live in Chicago. My first games were at Wrigley Field. Like, a lot of, so even though in my head I'm saying, um, you know, I, uh, I'm not a, uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I don't think of this too much as a sports movie, and I think it can be connected without being a, a sports fan. As I'm watching it, I'm also recognizing, like, I'm the guy that bought the 10 DVD box set that are just complete good Cubs games over the years, and I've watched them all, more, some of them more than once. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> I'm saying, like, you don't need to really love this thing that I just happen to also have loved or, or do love, uh, even though I, I have less time to devote to it. Right. Um, but... <clears throat> So, so I, yeah, I guess I, I, I actually do, like I said, basketball kind of went by the wayside once the Jordan years ended, but, um, I just haven't been as interested in that. Uh, football has had its own problems, but yeah, I mean, for most of my life, I collected, you know, trading cards and that was my obsession with friends and, you know, we, I played all the, you know, uh, NBA jams and Maddens and Tecmo Super Bowl. Like I, I, you know. I don't know if I loved it on my own or it's just my peer group was in it, but I, I was obsessed as much as anyone else with that stuff. Yeah. I mean, I, I was, I was pretty much the same way up until like my teen years. Um, so I can relate to all of that. I was terrible at baseball though. Baseball was my worst sport 
So maybe that has something. Maybe I'm I'm in, disinclined to give it the benefit of the doubt because I was so bad. Soccer was my worst part. Like I I could not figure that. Well, I was pretty good at soccer. Well, good for you. Yeah, you're right. Oh, oh, you guys like sports? I I was really into fox hunting. Fox hunting. Yeah, that rode, makes rode, sense. Rode horseback. Um, it's 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 a gentleman's sport. Unlike uh, I guess whatever prole things you were talking about. Uh, that's fucking disgusting of you, Pete. You should be ashamed of yourself. Listen, listen. The foxes were all suicidal. <laughs> <laughs> or is it just like guys named Fox? <laughs> like my brother-in-law, Bill Fox. Yeah, you're just you're just trying to find Bill Fox all the time. I hunted Bill Fox. <laughs> that I mean, uh, the, the most dangerous. I would never go fox stuff. hunting. Just to clarify. Also, I don't have the money. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, my dad was into to sports. Great. I mean, he was also into Star Trek. But um, oh, so, so he's I, a Renaissance man. He was a Renaissance man. Yep, he liked the Oregon Ducks and. Uh, Captain Kirk. Uh, I'd like to pull out one other part, though, that you talked about, which was Kevin Costner. Um, I think we talked a little bit about this um, now over, I don't know, five years ago, 2016, I guess. Yeah. I I do remember one of our listeners said I had libeled him because I had remembered him as a Republican. When he is not, he is a lifelong Democrat. Um, so I apologize for assuming that he was the face of 80s conservatism. But this this movie would certainly <laughs> give you that idea. But anyways, come on. Well, and just, a, I mean, a lot of his movies, like, yeah. comes from a, like, he's like, he feels a little bit politically like the Tim Allen of the 80s. But, uh, I guess that's not the case. But I will say, like, I have always been kind of a Kevin Costner fan. And I, I think, like, this movie really... You can for for a guy that would like acted like Kevin Costner and was in some movies that you wouldn't expect to be really big. I I do think this movie really exemplifies why he was such a big leading man in in the eighties, and that the amount of things that he has to to say with a straight face and with an element of sincerity in this movie is quite a lot. Like the fact that he has to hear these voices and then have these convincing conversations with his wife about I don't know I guess I gotta go. Do this, and and I think at least for me, all of it's super convincing. Like it, I I don't, I never. He has some really bad lines and some really tough things he has to get across. A level of of uh, some real foul uh, balls. <laughs> no, that's not what it's. <laughs> They're really bad pitches that he needs to nail and get a home run for this movie to work at all, or at least like a single, like to advance advance the runner. Yeah, and you know he. He has to – and he does it so well. Like, the the amount of, like, naturalistic dial, uh, uh, in, in, you know, dialogue that he's able to, uh, to give these lines that are literally, like, in any other mouth, they would go, okay, this, this makes no sense, is really impressive. And I think um, – I can see why Roger Ebert called him kind of like the Jimmy Stewart. Sure. Because we talked about that in It's a Wonderful Life. Like – Jimmy Stewart seemed like a method actor in an era where that wasn't really a thing. Like, it seems like when he's talking and when he's saying lines, it has an improvisational uh, style that, like, it didn't really exist too much in the 40s. But he's so good at making those lines a a part of his character that no matter what he's saying, no matter how he's saying it, you truly believe everything that comes out of his mouth. And so when you see a movie like this... Uh, that has uh, all of these lines that he needs to convince everyone to move the plot along. And the fact that I, at least um, from my perspective, he, he, he nails all of them. 
And it seems so natural. Uh, you know, I think that's why Kevin Costner really worked as a movie star for a short period of time. Mm-hmm. I think he's I think that I think the core quality of Kevin Costner that makes him work is that he's a hot dork. He's yeah, an att- he's an attractive dude. But like when he's playing Elliot Ness, you kind of forget that he was a prohibitionist <laughs> and like you forget that he's this guy who's essential his whole job is just to like hunt down paperwork against Al Capone and stop people from drinking. When you're watching the movie, you get kind of sucked up into it and you're like, you want to join in with his investigations in JFK, um, even though, you know, in real life, that guy was a kind of a, a looney tune. Yeah. The deal with him is that like when he makes that he makes these faces and he he makes these like uh, these very sincere, dignified faces. It helps you sort of like the sincerity is without self-consciousness. Yeah. And so and so in that way, like the do- the dork, the dorkiness almost like doesn't matter because it has this this artifice of confidence just fucking drowning in it. I think that's that's really uh, well said. It's what I was going to say, too, because a lot like uh, Jimmy Story, I think he conveys a sense of conviction and a sense of like sort of bedrock decency that those are the two like core Kevin Costner attributes and all these things that it, to the point where I think at least in this era, we'd have to I'd have to look at his uh, his CV. Uh, but it's like almost impossible for me to imagine Kevin Costner. This era is Kevin Costner anyways, as a villain. He's just he can't he doesn't strike me in any way as as a villainous guy. What what would, is there an example? A movie I've always wanted to do on the show that I fucking love. Um that I actually think maybe his best performance um is uh, have you guys seen A Perfect World? Uh no. I thought you were going to talk about Mr. Brooks and I was like, one of your favorite movies? Uh, I'm sorry, go on. <laughs> Dean Cook's Mr. Brooks? <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, no, uh, so uh, 1983's Perfect World, which is uh, with Laura Dern, uh, it's directed by Clint Eastwood, uh, where he plays a uh, uh, a murderer who escapes from prison and kidnaps a kid. Um, and then it's still like why it works so well is he's definitely like a bad dude uh, um, from the like from the video game of the same era. Bad dudes. Are you a bad, um, bad enough dude to save the president? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Are you a bad um, dude to abduct a child? <laughs> um, he tries to protect this kid from this other guy that came out. And so, like, it's this weird, like, complicated um, thing about, like, he's kind of nice to this kid. And his whole thing is that he was, like, abused by his father. And he's trying to give this kid a life that he was denied when he, like, committed murder at a young age after this horribly abusive upbringing it, it's a really like it's a very well-directed movie and just a very complicated thing but it this that's like the end of this era of kevin costner and then that goes into like the the mid to late 90s to your point because it goes like we're if we start like in 87 we get untouchables no way out bull durham and field of dreams or are, are and revenge which i don't know that well but it's still a tony scott movie dances with wolves robin hood prince of thieves jfk the bodyguard like those are all good or bad fucking giant movies and that's 87 to 92 and then 93 to 95 he does a perfect world which i think is really good but people were kind of like not really ready to see him as like this kind of like uh bad guy he does the I think war it's the only clint eastwood movie that could probably qualify as a cult movie <laughs> Uh, yeah, probably. Uh, we need to do it on the show at some point. It's fantastic. Um, 
Uh, the War, which is kind of this forgotten like little movie, but he's like an abusive alcoholic dad with Elijah Wood as his son. Um, Waterworld. And then that's basically – then we get into really like the postman, message in the bottle, play it to the bone. They're, you know, we get into those late stage where it's like, is he even a star anymore? Well, that's really interesting because I wanted to tell I, – I, I couldn't remember if I brought this up uh, during any of our other Kevin Costner discussions. But, you know, I, I work in a movie theater and uh, – or I used to before the plague and uh, – we were talking about Kevin Costner one time, and there are a lot of the, my the coworkers are very young, and uh, they do not know who Kevin Costner is. And and so my boss and I, who are about the same age, we're trying. We're just naming movies, and they're like, "Nope, nope, nope!" Like these big movies, you're saying. And then it was like, "Well, kind of. Why would they? Like, if you don't go, if you're." 17 years old you probably aren't like i think i'm gonna go watch dances with wolves like it probably isn't gonna happen and then his his imdb page testifies to this like long decline and so we started like trying to convey to them what kevin costner meant at the time we were like having kind of this discussion and we were surrounded by these teenagers who looked at us like we were insane but we're like because it was a moment where Kevin Costner was the biggest star in the world, and he really biggest star in the world. He really sexiest man alive, like, and he really connoted he connoted something specific about kind of like heartland decency, this like Americana, this big chunk of apple pie in human form, and uh, it's it's not really remembered by the next generation. It seems well, and I yeah, I agree, and I also think partially that's just because like. The movies I listed were huge. None of those movies have any cultural cachet except for film buffs. Like, no one talks about Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, except as a, like, nostalgia pick. Like, it, it probably has the same cachet that, like, you know, Robin and Marion did with, you know, Sean Connery as a star um, for us as kids. Like, if we would have saw it in the movie store, we'd go, oh, weird, a Robin Hood movie from 20 years ago like is this any good um even and then there's stuff like like you know jfk and the bodyguard and uh bull durham and no way out and the untouchables which i think are all pretty good movies but like even their directors are generally washed up so it's not like i i doubt many people even like even like film kids are like they probably don't think of like brian de palma and Oliver Stone is like like a Scorsese. Like, I'm still seeing vital movies by this guy. And as a film lover, I'm going to go back and watch his early stuff. And through that, like, I'm discovering, you know, these movies like a, like a JFK or a Untouchables. Uh, because those, you know, De Palma and Stone specifically, while huge directors for us, probably, you know, you, you would – you would have to go back to them, I think, as a, as a current or a younger film fan in the same way that we go back to like a Preston Sturgis because they're they're not still making vital movies that are getting discussed in in current like film circles and haven't for a long time. Right. Yeah. And and, and there's there's like a sort of key. I don't know if the they, you call them upswings, but there's key upswings in like Costner's career over the past few years that have been. Yeah. 
that have been kind of interesting. So, like, obviously, like, even in the midst of his nadir of Dragonfly and 300 Miles to Graceland, like, you know, some of the worst movies he ever made, um, right after I got, the a, soft, Postman, I got a soft spot for 3,000 Miles to Graceland. Um, uh, I, I like Kurt Russell in it because I think Kurt Russell was excited to play to do an Elvis riff again. To do an Elvis movie. You yeah. know who else I like in it? Kevin Costner as the other Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll do that in the show. Um, uh, I do like one movie from that era that I think is legitimately good is uh, Rumor, ha- uh, not Rumor Has It, uh, Upside Anger. Oh, the I only good Mike Binder movie. I haven't seen that one. So the the one of that era that I think is like sort of regarded as a well-respected Kevin Costner return to form is Open Range. Um, oh, yeah, which is good. That movie is largely remembered from people saying they stopped making good Westerns after the night after, you know, basically from 1990 onward. Yeah. And, you know, apart from Tombstone, there's only that. And then like, well, hold on, there's Open Range and blah, blah, blah. Like that is a very much a uh, it speaks to. You're speaking to a sort of classic movie era in your comparisons, Preston Sturgis era, and you're speaking to Jimmy Stewart. Like, open range yeah. feels like uh, a back to basics approach. That's not Kevin Costner spreading his wings, but it's him saying, like, hey, there is a reason that I exist at all. Um, and then, <laughs> yeah. you know, he had more subversion, subversions, yeah, subversions of that with, like, Mr. Brooks, like I mentioned. But honestly, like... The the mode that we like him best in in the past 10, 15 years is the same mode we liked him in in the yeah. late 80s, early 90s, which is like sober man of conviction, um, bureaucrat with a slight bit of rebellion in him. But like he just wants to make sure the system succeeds, um, you know, a guy who believes in, in something higher than himself. Um, mm-hmm. And like, we'll, we'll literally die to protect it. Like he, like uh, his interpret or sorry, I should say Snyder's interpretation of, of Jonathan Kent of a uh, Pa Kent in, um, <laughs> in uh, uh, the two, the two Snyder Batman movies so yeah. far, or I guess. Yeah. Uh, he, I mean, he's Man a psychopath in Dawn of Justice. He's a psychopath in Man of Steel, but he, like Kevin Costner plays him as a psychopath very well. Yeah. But that's supposed <laughs> Don't to Don't be- save anyone. I think Snyder thinks that's, I think Snyder thinks that's an act of yeah. like, um, you know, uh, an act of sacrifice to protect his son, right? I, I, I fucking love the idea that Rick is talking to these younger kids at the movie theater and talking about Kevin Costner, Sexiest Man Alive, the, uh, the, the biggest movie star in the world for five years, and like, as he's trying to name movies, he finally probably gets these kids that, you know... Pa Kent it, from that Man is, of Steel. That is what happened. Pa Kent was the biggest movie star <laughs> in the fucking world. Like, um, think of your Superman, whether it was Lois and Clark or Christopher Reeve, and, and imagine in your head who plays Pa Kent in those, and imagine that someone told you they were the biggest movie star and the sexiest man alive 20 years before. That's almost that's almost exactly what happened. I showed, I showed a picture to one kid, and he was like, oh, from Superman, or whatever he said, from Batman. I was like, oh, yeah, I should have. that's what I should have said. So, Aaron, this would be the same conversation if your dad explained to him that explained to you that like the voice of Omicron or whatever from Transformers made what what a, what is considered the best movie of all time. Look, his name is Unicron. He's a planet eater. Uh, <laughs> well, that's another movie we got to do on the show. Nineteen eighty six is. 
uh transformers the movie yeah, yeah i but mean you, but he also he's you know his return to form like he pops up every few years to do another return to form that like does well like draft day and hidden figures did well and that's him playing like a a, a, biz, a, a, a systems man a man who like yeah he's like the system works i might have to do some small rebellions to make sure it works but that's who i am and that like that's largely the same mold that people fell in love with him in the elliot ness uh untouchable sorry in the untouchables era with elliot ness I've heard that Joey's in Yellowstone is really good, too. Yeah, it's the sort of thing where if we didn't live in 2020 or 2021, where uh, every show is supposed to be good, I probably would check it out just to see if, you know, what's what sort of wholesome Western stuff he's up to. But, um, you know, I'm not going to. No, I mean, me neither, probably. Uh, It's got West Bentley, though. So, yeah. There are like four, like, you know, there are four shows that kind of look like Justified. Like, yeah, so I, I, I'm actually like really I'm excited to kind of get into what what does work in this movie for me, um, starring uh, everyone's favorite uh, movie star. Uh, it, it is the like, Peter, you named the you called it a boomer movie. And I think that's a little bit reductive only because like you can't just like I know boomers as a generation and as a as a people suck, but you can't just be shitty about every movie that stars boomers. No, it's That's a lot of movies. Have you seen the first like two minutes of the movie? <laughs> yeah, he's reminiscing about growing up with his dad. What's that's not boomery. The the thing the reason why I think this is a quintessential boomer movie uh, is because it is largely about his renunciation of the sixties. Moving forward and and eventually actually embracing uh, capitalism, uh, yeah. At the very end, that that's kind of what it is. His like he it basically is a feature length apology for ever having um, disagreed with his dad. Interesting. Um, hey, that's actually a pretty good reading of it. <laughs> um, I. I think that's an accurate reading, although I would disagree that I feel like maybe this is um, and I'm not telling you you're wrong, Rick, or anything like that. But I feel like that's all that it that feels a little bit to me like the people that like talk about Ghostbusters as primarily an anti-government regulation movie. <laughs> like, yeah, that's like you can definitely read it that way. But I I. I don't know. I, it, it, it doesn't like. I agree that that part at the end where he's like, and then they'll give you twenty bucks. <laughs> it really sabotages that that's speech. To save, that's to save the farm. I guess the that's a that's a clumsier. It's a wonderful life. Everyone dumps the money in the bucket so that he doesn't lose his, uh, you know, the building and loan. And it's a wonderful life moment. It's just kind of like, oh, well, we're not going to show everyone dump money out of the car. So. And and they'll give you twenty bucks. No, no, no man. I love it. No man is poor who can fleece strangers. Yeah, but I, I mean, I mean, he does have twenty bucks to 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 find out there's an afterlife and ghosts is I think a good deal. Yeah, that's probably you know what the ending means because no one else can see the ghosts except for. Well, let's talk about it after the break. Let's talk. Well, we we can talk about that, but like, so I think that's a fair read, but I also think that's a little bit a little bit reductive. Okay. You're probably right. Okay. But okay. Um, all right, let's get let's get into it more though. Are you guys ready to talk about if you record it, we will release it as a podcast.
Uh, Peter, you are... Oh, I don't even know why I'm doing this, because you hate doing alternate taglines, and whatever you're going to say is going to be shitty about the movie. But, Peter, your alternate taglines? Sure. If you, if you tag it, it will be alternate. <laughs> the daring ripoff of Angels in the Outfield. <laughs> I mean, Angels in the Outfield came after and mm-hmm. technically before this. You know... Uh, I, I would say Cause, that because the one is, you like is a remake. I would say that uh, all dead people um are traversing this uh, blasted heath of an earth. Uh, so in a sense, uh, if, if angels are everywhere, angels could technically be on a baseball outfield. Can I ask you a question, Peter? Would this movie sure. be a five star movie if at the end when everything was over? The voice said one more thing, and it was, be my victim. (laughs) (laughs) Jet fuel can't melt steel beams. (laughs) Okay, okay. I have to to say that when I watched this movie, I was like, this is the same plot to take shelter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is. Good point. Uh, I mean, he gets a lot more affirmation quicker (laughs) that... (laughs) <laughs> that the voice was right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, that's like if in Take Shelter, Michael Shannon bu- starts building and then a fucking hurricane wipes out the, the state. <laughs> <laughs> and God's like, the only people that will survive are people in the bleachers and in the outfield. High <laughs> five, Mike. You did it. <laughs> You got the message. Okay, so this movie starts very quickly with a, a quick montage of Ray Kinsala, played by Kevin Costner, and his relationship with his dad, which, um, you know, his dad played some baseball. They had a falling out. Uh, they hadn't spoken since. He was 17. He moved to California to experience the 60s uh, and then met uh, his, his wife, who's played by Amy Madigan. I f- I'm forgetting her character's name. Uh, Amy Madigan is Annie. Annie, sorry. I thought it was Amy, and I'm like, I don't think they named her after a real name. Although I should note, the person who wrote the book that this movie is based on, the book is called Shoeless Joe, and it's written by W.R. Kinsala, and his middle name is Ray. So he named the main character of the book after himself, and I don't think it's an autobiography unless at some point this guy met J.D. Solinger and uh, had baseball ghosts at his house. So... Um, I, I think that takes a lot of balls, and I appreciate that he named the main character of his fiction book after himself. But, um, yeah, so he meets Amy. Uh, they move to Iowa, where Amy's from. They end up buying a farm and having a kid, and his dad dies. And he is the least crazy person, but he was about to do something a little crazy. And uh, he's in his cornfield in Iowa, and he hears... Here's a voice that says, uh, if you build it, he will come. And uh, he kind of ignores it, thinks he's going crazy. I actually really love the shots of him in that open cornfield. And I think the voice is like really well done in both a uh, almost inhuman tone, spooky, but ethereal as well. But um, my guess is that Peter would disagree because he fucking hates this movie. (laughs) I, I can't. I can't. Pa- I'm pausing for a reaction. Nope. Keep going. Okay, great. Um, 
So uh, he eventually hears this voice again and believes that um, that if he builds a baseball field and plows his cornfield, that Shoeless Joe Jackson from the infamous uh, 1919 Black Sox will come. Now, Peter, I'm going to pause you for a sec because we might not get back to it. Were you familiar with the – not a Sox fan. No, but were you familiar with – I mean, it's a, a famous story. I was familiar with the gambling scandal and I was familiar with why Shoeless Joe Jackson um, got that nickname. But I feel like, you know, once he put the shoes back on – He should be shoot. Sh- shoot Jackson. Shoot Jackson. loses his first name too. <laughs> You're either Shoeless Joe or Shoed Jack. <laughs> it's like a, it's like a Garth Brooks, Chris Gaines situation. This is alter yeah. Garth ego. Brooks, Garth Brooks, and if could play Kevin Costner in a movie and vice versa. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They they kind of remind me of each other. Now. Kevin Costner's a he's a singer now, right? Doesn't he sing? He sings country songs. Oh, I mean, I think we put a lot on Kevin Costner based on his persona. I called him a staunch Republican when he like com- campaigned for everything. No, no, I, I really, I really do. He, I think he fronts a band called like the Ramblers or some shit. This is true. I mean, I got the swing vote. <laughs> <laughs> Their cover of Wagon Wheel is adequate. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so wait, he has a Lieutenant Dan band thing kind of thing. They're called they're called Kevin Costner and Modern West. Oh, an American country rock band. So he was someone that was in a movie, and then he was like, "I am that character from the movie." <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan of that band. I had no idea that he was in it. <laughs> 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 At least do whatever Keanu's uh, band's name is, because I can't even remember what Keanu's band's name is. Uh, everyone knows uh, Bruce Willis's, though, right? Uh, Bruno. Bruno! <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh, white guys. And then return oh. to, to Return of Bruno. The Return of Bruno. That was his first album. It was kind of like the return of the Mac because there was no song called uh, the Mac. Right. If we do a Die Hard month, can we do a, a special episode on Bruno and Return of Bruno? We should just because I've. Ne- I mean, obviously, I've never heard the album. Why would I? Who would? Um, I, I think calling it an album is actually the biggest compliment that I could probably. I hope it's like that Jerry Lewis uh, clown Holocaust movie where like t- where like he has a vault in his uh, like whatever. Um, his like la mansion um he's just <laughs> yeah. like he's just got every copy of return to bruno all the tapes kind of like how the rnc bought all donald trump jr's books uh, anyway. <laughs> uh, he spent like millions of dollars on that too like four million dollars to get it on the new york times bestseller yeah, anyways so nicholas cage has his uh his paying off dinosaur bones uh, excuse for why he's doing all these shitty movies in bulgaria or whatever uh bruce willis's he excuse gave those is bones he hey buy. he gave the bones back when he found out they were stolen so he doesn't have the bones he just has a lot of debt uh, cause when you give back stolen things, they don't give you back the money that you paid for them. Uh, <laughs> and it would just be another sale of stolen goods. Yeah, that's just a sale of stolen goods. Uh, really quickly, have either of you, my guess is that if the answer is yes, it's going to come from Rick. Have either of you guys seen the John Sales movie, uh, Eight Men Out? I sure have. It's really good. I like it a lot better than Field of <laughs> God damn it, Rick. 
Just was trying to say something positive <laughs> about a movie about it that's really good. Yeah, it is great. It's great. It's a great film. Um. So, anyways, uh, so that's what he does. I, one thing, I maybe we might as well just talk about it now. I really like the relationship between Ray and Annie. I do too. Um, Annie's great. Annie is uh, usually it's a very thankless role usually in these yeah. movies, and Amy Madigan refuses to make it that. Amy uh, Madigan has a very um big scene uh where she essentially uh is like touting her you know free spirit uh 60s idealism um but other than that it's mostly just like ray we can't afford this and ray we can't afford this but the character never feels like a haranguing housewife no she literally never like even when she has like those moments that would happen in lesser movies where like he calls and she's like the men from the she doesn't do the the men from the bank are here even though the men are the bank from here she's like i'm gonna be able to handle this i am supportive of what my husband is doing yeah um and it's and she yeah she has a great arc she has a lot of agency and i think like there's that there's that scene that regardless of what you think of the output should like is the scene that this is the everest that this movie needs to get over to make it work at all and that is the scene where ray tells uh annie that he's heard a voice and he thinks that voice is to build a baseball uh stadium uh for shoeless joe jackson and those two are so good at playing that moment and how that discussion lends that it is both believable that he truly believes this and it's believable that Annie is like, I need to hear more of why you're thinking this and what, you know, like it is those, they feel like a real couple. They feel like they've had a long-term relationship and they feel like a very good couple, like a very healthy couple that even though her husband is saying, I've heard a voice and I need to build this, the how how they get to the point where she is on board with it is such an important scene. I think those quiet scenes between them are probably my favorite part of the movie because um, it. Yeah. I actually think uh, a lot of the the way that they draw out the narrative is is pretty pre- preposterous, and it would be almost impossible to sell it, and they somehow get the keep the train moving along. I'm hearing literal whispers. And that's what's driving him to to do this um, is uh, a, a big sticking point for me. Um, it's, it's another reason I was so shocked. This movie was essentially the field of dreams was built within 15 minutes. Um, and they meet Shoeless Joe Jackson at uh, 20 minutes. <laughs> um, yeah. Like mm-hmm. I, 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 the fact that they get to the ghosts and they well, get that's to the, the thing. It's 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 not about that. That's the whole point. Um, but the, 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 the whispering, uh, is, is a fairly, I think Rick used the correct word. It's fairly preposterous. It's a fairly contrived concept to have in this movie. I'd much prefer like, <clears throat> uh, Hey, why are you plowing this part of the field? And he's just like, I feel like an impulse. Like, I feel like this is, I feel like this field needs to be uh, a baseball field. And like, I feel like that would be a little bit better. But the thing is, like, as preposterous as the, the, the sort of setup is, um, their life feels pretty idyllic in a lot of ways, minus the yeah. money issues. Um, it feels like they're both very happy. It feels like they're both pretty good parents. Uh, it feels yeah. like... Of Gabby Hoffman. Of Gabby Hoffman. 
Um, it feels, which we've done a few of the early Gabby Hoffman movies now, because we did this and we've also done, um, uh, Sleepless in Seattle. It makes it not depressing, which sometimes when you watch these movies and it's about like a, uh, some, uh, people who are living out a, a sort of, I don't want to say meager existence, but like a humble existence. Like all they want to be is farmers and, yeah. uh, uh, their, their 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 dreams are fairly small until they get big like it can seem kind of depressing just hanging mm-hmm. out with them for a period of time yeah. um but like it's not depressing with them it seems like no. they have a pretty sweet sweet deal uh and i think the voice as long as we're talking about the voice i don't need to circle back to it later um i i think the voice is important because the movie that you're describing is like a a take shelter or even if you uh, a non-supernatural thing of like a straight story which is like I have this thing I need to do and I don't care if other people understand it necessarily and I think that becomes watching this if you as an audience member like you are with a take shelter like you don't know if Michael Shannon is suffering you know some version of schizophrenia or a mental break or if he's you know, really experiencing it. And I think the fact that, you know, this movie isn't about that, like, is Kevin Costner hearing a voice? Is, is there something in the universe that's making him do it? Um, you know, you already get affirmation that there is within 20 minutes because Julius Joe Jackson steps out of a cornfield and starts playing, you know, catch with them. So I think having a literal voice is while while definitely uh I, I think it's important to the type of movie that ultimately they're making here. It's good for you as an audience member to recognize that Ray isn't delusional. He doesn't have a feeling. It's it's more about whether he is going to take a leap of faith and quote unquote do something crazy that he's not he's not getting, you know, clear direction on. It's not just the voice. He actually hallucinates the feel. That's how he knows what the literal yeah. meaning is. So, well, he he sees the lights, yeah. Yeah. So, well, no, he sees like the whole field, right? Oh, you're right. You're right. But you're right. so there's that, but also on top of that, it's not really just he keeps saying, the movie keeps telling us that he he's never really done too many nutty things. He's going to do this this thing. He's going to step out and uh, you know, dream his impossible dream. But later on, James Earl Jones tells him that it's his penance. He, he uses that word, penance. He's atoning for – he's trying to repair this relationship with his father and his penance is to do all these things. So it's kind of – there's a lot – there's a separate narrative going on or a separate message that the film's giving, which is much less hopeful and much less life-affirming to me. He, he's, he's, it seems to me, like Pete was saying, he's, their life is pretty good. They seem really happy until out of nowhere his ghost dad comes to tell him to atone for his sins. Which is a very different. Oh, I, film. I don't. I don't think that it was supposed to be his dad that's saying those. Or, or the or God or the universe, whatever it is. Yeah. He he has to he has to fix the error of saying Shoeless Joe Jackson was a crook fifty years ago. So, I God, we're getting way ahead, but that's fine. <laughs> um, I I get. I, I mean, that's the basic ask of the movie: you're either on the train or you're not. And we're yeah. I mean, I think that's to say ter- one of us got on the train into it. <laughs> So, but I do think in that defense of that part, I mean, that's Terrence Mann interpreting Kevin Costner's story through his own lens with 20 minutes left of the movie. I actually don't think it's about, it's his penance or anything like that, but we, well, let's, let's get there quickly. So 
most people probably know the plot of Field of Dreams, so except the two of you that I've chosen to have this podcast with prior to watching it, but um <laughs> sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so anyway, so he he builds the baseball field, and Ray Liotta, Shoeless Joe Jackson comes out. Um, a quick note that we might not get back to: so they cast Ray Liotta because they very specifically did not want him to seem like a father figure to Ray Kinsala, because that would take away from uh, who both Terrence Mann as a cultural father figure and um, his actual dad were. Uh, so they, they cast a very young, kind of, quote unquote, a dangerous performer as as, as his. Well, I, I think it's funny to call Ray Liotta dangerous. Well, he's, but like, Goodfellas is like, he's coming right up on Goodfellas. He's playing Henry, that's, Henry that's Hill here. Year. Yeah. They cast him specifically because of, uh, of his persona like that. And they didn't even yeah. see if he liked or could play baseball. Um, and well, great news! You don't have to play baseball. He's not. He's not a southpaw. He's right. right-handed. Nor, nor is he from South Carolina. Yeah. <laughs> a lot. A lot. The, the internet is full of um, some baseball nerds who who dwell on this. But yeah, yeah. Baseball and movie nerds. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I think that's a really good casting choice because it. He actually, you know, he's he's younger. I. I mean, I. I did not notice the fact that he says that he's turning 37, which is my age in this movie. I'm like, oh, no. I've reached Kevin Costner's age. Oh, boy. Dream. And you haven't insulted a baseball legend to your father, right? Who is still alive. I mean, I have a lot of co- I have a very complicated relationship with my father, which maybe, uh, maybe is why this movie speaks to me a little bit. But we can get into that in a sec. Um so the uh yeah so they uh they he builds it they come more people come they're watching the baseball game um his wife sees it his kid sees it they go out and watch it um also they're 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 threatened with losing the farm because he plowed out this part of his field it's great crop money for corn i don't know how the economics of farming work but anyways it seems like it was a bad idea financially and they're and all the neighbors are like this lunatic basically threw money away to have a baseball field for the record it seems like it's a very small i i don't think it would sink the family farm but yeah I don't think so. But again, I don't know the economics of corn growth, profit. I don't know the P&Ls involved. I don't know. I, I think so I think as a recurring theme, the, the film just asks us to go along with it. It's like a fable. You know what I mean? Well, I don't think we're supposed to look at the P&Ls. Agree 100%. Like, I think that's why, like, I... It is magical realism, which is always, like, if you buy in, it can be extremely, not to overuse the word, magical. If not, yeah, there's a lot of things that you can do a side eye of like, uh, well, this is kind of dumb. Uh, but anyways, uh, so uh, I th- in what I think is like – so to kick off the second half of the plot, there's another uh, voice, which is ease, the, ease his pain. Um, he's like, well, I built the field. I don't understand why I'm hearing the voice. I feel like I accomplished my task. Uh, Peter and, and Rick seem also to feel that way. Like, I feel like they built the field. That's what I know about this movie. The dream field has been erected. <laughs> why is there more? Um, it's that is that the, it felt like the the field was his dream, and then he builds a pretty goddamn good baseball field at a certain point, and he got and quickly ghosts. And Not even quickly. like like he didn't get like I don't know Roger Maris. He wasn't like off and like 
oh, fuck, Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris came out. Well, I mean, this is good, but I was expecting Shoeless Joe Jackson. Like, he got the exact baseball ghosts he thought he was going to get. Right. Which Anybody that runs seances will tell you that your chances of getting the right person yeah. the first time are not ideal. Not ideal, but he got the specific ghost. That ghost bought, brought other ghosts that they were interested in. How do we um, know that this isn't a demon posing as Shoeless Joe Jackson? Well, I think if the movie ended with Be My Victim, you would know that it was. <laughs> I have I to say, though, when the when the ghost first comes out. It does feel like a horror movie. It d- oh, I love I love that scene of like there's someone in our yard, um, and Kevin Costner kind of pats his daughter on the shoulder, yeah. and he's like clearly scared, but he's trying to give her whatever comfort that he he can allow. Yeah. Um, and there's this dark, dark, angry shadow, and it ends up being Ray Liotta standing in his front yard, and and it, it creeps me out in a similar way to like. You know, in ghost movies, when there's just like a 1920s guy there, <laughs> I, I actually I, th- I thought of uh, Jordan Peele's Us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's 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 um it's very much like uh your your past coming back to haunt you. Um, yeah, and uh, James Horner's uh, score does some really great work in that moment too. To kind of yeah, and I don't know if it's a cultural thing or it's it's because I am from uh, Illinois, land of corn, but like I know that. It is very easy to get lost in cornfields. Um, yeah, you have to like basically listen for the highway. Um, and so this this uh, ghost confidently striding into the cornfield is very creepy. Like it's not a sh- it's not actually a children of the corn thing. It's a growing up and being creeped out by cornfields thing. Well, and I mean the Twilight Zone. That's where they send you. So if you come back, not great. Not ideal. Sometimes they come back from more. <laughs> and, and like uh, the whole hearing voices thing, like I, I, I don't. Yeah, know. I think I think you could do a good remake where it's if you build it, he will come, and then a, a fucking monster just emerges from the cornfield. <laughs> yeah, you could kills the family. And this then is that- essentially the plot to um, uh, Devil's Candy. Where the art, an artist starts hearing voices, and, the, yeah, and he's just like, he's like, oh, the, the the they want me to build my dream. My dream is to build these these uh, large scale um, portraits. And like his family is suffering, he's staying away from his family. He's not turning in the art that makes money for his family on time. His family's about to go through some sort of like bankruptcy situation. He keeps drawing these like terrifying demon portraits. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, this yeah. Is, this is that Ethan Embry? Yeah, yeah. This, this is good movie. This movie feels like a de, de, whatever Devil's Candy feels like a, a, a flip side of I guess Take oh, Shelter yeah. and Devil's Candy feel like the scary flip side of, of Field of Dreams. So we already have that. So what I what I would admit is like I think the the hardest like pivot that this movie does is and the hardest like sell even now I felt this way as a kid too is like. Uh, the ease the pain thing. So they just happen to be going to a uh, a, a PTA meeting pain. on uh, a book banning of Terrence Mann's book. Very very abruptly, out of nowhere. Very abruptly. <laughs> I, I I think like my biggest criticism of this movie, just from a um, holding together the magical re- realism part. And again, it was like a criticism I had as a kid. I remember seeing this 
as eight, and it was like, oh, okay, well this this feels less fluid than the if you build it, <laughs> he will come part. Um, I think the rest of it actually like just tracks well from a um, we go here and then we go here and then we go here, but I do think the bridge from I built the the um, the baseball diamond to. Oh, we have to help Terrence Mann is a little bit awkward. But uh, so anyways, they do go to this PTA meeting. They're going to ban Terrence Mann, a fictional author again in the actual book this movie's based on. It was J.D. Solinger, who is, uh, you know, a famous recluse. uh, And they position him the same way, except they also position him as a uh, kind of an avatar of a few parts of the 60s, both the idea of the anti-war movement, uh, civil rights movement, and just um, a general and author who kind of spoke to a generation who was sick of war and sick of uh, racism. Um they don't do enough with that. We can get to that. I mentioned that already. We can circle back around to that. But um, but essentially, uh, Annie gives this very impassioned speech that feels like, I don't know, like probably something you could have any day of the week in 2020 America about how um, censoring anti-racist and anti-fascist ideas is inherently fascist. Um, but somewhere along that way, Ray realizes that ease his pain of course means terrence mann and you also find out that terrence mann was this author that meant a lot to both of them as as kids of the 60s i think the problem with changing it to from jd salinger which i get that like the catcher in the rye could be a generations um novel although that seems maybe you know uh, apocryphal at best but like i don't really know what the equivalent would be Rick, I don't know if you have any ideas of like what what would be an idea that like speaks to like specifically like nineteen sixties countercultural white people, but also you know is like a novel that they all read and like I don't know maybe like uh, like Tom Robbins or like I, I don't know who James Earl Jones is I don't know who Terrence Mann is supposed to be like I, I don't really. Well, in the, yeah, in the book, it's supposed to be Gene. Yeah, but Salinger is also not – he was not a political figure in any way. No. So it, like, it doesn't have the like, same resonance. Like, like, like a felt. countercultural figure. Yeah. Yeah. I guess maybe like a Kerouac. Yeah, it's a, I was thinking a little bit later, like the hitchhiker, like um, what yeah. I'm call it. The, I don't – yeah, I don't know. It's It's a little hard to figure exactly what they're going for because he's also – He's very much disillusioned now with this role, right? Like, he's turned his back on the 60s, which is another uh, nail in the coffin, the movie's nail in the coffin of 60s counterculture. It's this part of its, like, uh, DNA is this Reaganite fable that I see it as, but, yeah. Man, I can't believe you see this shit as a Reagan. Anyways, okay, well, let's power through. So, anyways, he decides he needs to go, and he he starts doing research on Terrence Mann, and finds and finds out that like he has basically disappeared from public view, which they knew, but also that he writes like kids' computer games about peaceful resolution, and also. Um, uh, has given a few interviews in his life that seems to indicate that he has always wanted to like see a baseball game or his old greats. And this is where they reference like, you know, Ebbets Field and Jackie Robinson, which makes a lot of sense because 
uh, man is played by Thomas Earl Jones, but then they literally discard that afterwards, which actually I think like if they were going to do a modern remake uh, of this, I think that like uh, that's the part. Uh, that would be the most interesting to get into. But anyway. I, you know what? I, I think maybe James Baldwin, now that I think about it. I bet he's like a James Baldwin kind of guy. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that makes sense. a lot of sense. He talks about Martin. He talks about Martin and stuff. He talks about, yeah, civil rights. I think James Baldwin makes a lot of sense when I saw this, but he didn't have like a – he didn't have a book that I think that was like prized as the cl- – you know, I know it's not a one-to-one. Yeah. So if James Baldwin wrote The Catcher in the Rye, but The Catcher in the Rye was about like <laughs> uh, overthrowing your parents' generation from a racist perspective, that's who Thomas Mann is, I guess. <laughs> um, if you're going to make a, uh, a, a an inspiring pop movie, you make him sort of an amalgam of different figures of the era, yeah. and you let different people see different things in, in, in this character. Well, I just – I really think like one one thing that a lot of like modern baseball historical criticism um, is about is really about like the, the kind of uh, sustained racist campaign against um, people of color and like even Jackie Robinson and like um, – you know, his, his very like specific – way to start like utilizing him as a civil rights figure by a lot of like civil rights groups at the time and stuff like that so i i just do think there's a there's a lot here that would would be very interesting to dive into especially as it relates to the fact that they are you know the nostalgia that they're going back to is in pre-integration is a yeah yeah is 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 um and also a time when only white people were allowed to play in that you know, the other leagues were truly seconds. So it's it's interesting that they, they kind of like touch on it and they graze it and then they don't do anything interesting with it. I do think having this figure is more uh, interesting thematically than having a J.D. Salinger type uh, works better for the movie. Um, and I love seeing – I think James Earl Jones is really good in this role. But I, I mean – I would agree with anyone with the criticism that this like is like, oh yeah, uh, black people love the 1920s baseball, shoeless Joe, uh, and recognizing how much that kind of sucks. So anyway, yeah, and and, and while we're on James Earl Jones, like yeah, I I don't want to besmirch his performance at all no. because this is like one of his best performances. It's so good. It's He's, so good. He has that good. monologue at the end that lets me completely, it, I completely forget about my criticisms <laughs> of the movie and the fact that I don't yeah. particularly care about baseball in a modern sense. Um, like, I, I, I completely forget it, and I just get sucked into the fucking frame, man. Like, he, he, he's such mag- magnetism. <laughs> yeah, he's great, but I just – I couldn't disagree more. I, I'm, I'm going to let it go and, <laughs> and, and talk about it, but the, I have the speech in front of me. So, let's keep in mind that we are talking about pre-integration baseball. We are talking about segregated American society. We're talking about Jim Crow. That's what this is nostalgia for. Here's here's let me read you what he says. Before you read it, so so you understand where I'm coming from. I agree that the worst part of this movie is not his delivery of the speech, but how 
it feels uh, like some sort of weird white supremacist tactic to have a black person talk about pre-integration. Yeah, that's the thing is James Earl Jones is so fucking good. I forget about the fact that I thematically do not align with what the movie is saying here. Sorry, go on, Rick. He's fantastic and he does everything he can to sell this. But this is what he says. The one constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. America has rolled by like an army of steamrollers. It's been erased like a blackboard, rebuilt and erased again. But baseball has marked the time. This field, this game, it's a part of our past, Ray. It reminds us of all that was once good and could be again. That He's talking about Jim Crow, just to be clear. What do you think I said at the beginning, Rick? <laughs> like, there's a serious problem in this movie about the way that they use his character. And, yeah, that speech, while well-delivered, definitely rings differently than when I was eight years old and didn't understand all this shit. Yeah. It is – it's tough to digest and it feels um, obscene. I, I guess I guess the, the, I'm going to leave it at that, but I just wanted to flag it because it's actually that speech that stopped me kind of in my tracks. And I was like, are you – kidding me right now (laughs) yeah no it's that is totally fair i look what did i say at the very beginning of this (laughs) that is the part i called out as uh extremely problematic um so i i do agree with that anyways um but in the in the good part of his performance god damn it i laughed so many times um by myself watching this movie on headphones like the the so so Ray goes to James Earl Jones' house, Thomas Mann's apartment, tracks him down, and tries to convince him to go see a baseball game with him because that's what he thinks he needs to do. He always wanted to see a baseball game. I got to take him to this baseball game. There's a part where he gets kicked out and he comes back in and pretends to have a gun, which is a very funny scene. Clearly, a finger in a jacket. And <laughs> James Earl Jones picks up a crowbar and goes, "I'll tell you what I'm going to do." I'm going to beat you with this crowbar until you go away. <laughs> and as he raises the crowbar to beat him, uh, Kevin Costner pulls out the finger and goes, but you're a pacifist. And he throws the crowbar on the on the ground and says, shit. <laughs> <laughs> it is so good. Like I was I was uh, laughing so hard and I love like everything that this th- I hope. Uh, I guess I don't hope. You guys can feel however you want about it. But um, this whole scene of him trying to get him to get in the car is so fucking funny and it's so good. And I love the way that Ray is kind of kind of a little bit of a dullard. He just can't figure out how to do it. And eventually it just feels like Terrence just takes some pity on him and is like, look, you don't want any money. You don't want any like tangible thing. Sure, we'll go to this dumbass fucking baseball game. I think the performances are at most of the time fairly well executed. Uh, I'm not going to yeah. say everyone. Um, it, it, it's just that the underlying uh, the underlying pull of the movie does not pull. Um, so, like, I, when you get me in the moment, like, okay, so I'm, I, I understand why he's in his apartment. He wants him to come back to the baseball field. He's like, all right, this is – to me, I read this as a guy – who feels like his this messages he's been getting means he's either crazy or he has to absolutely do this or he's he's you know squandering something uh, a yeah. gift from you know a gift from the heavens uh, so like yes like I in that scene I understand exactly who who Ray is despite the fact that like five minutes earlier I was like 
why are we going to fucking Boston? Like, I get it because James Earl Jones and Kevin Costner saw the fucking scene. I, I, I'm, I'm there with you on yeah. that for sure. You can also see the van that he drives, why um, there used to be a concern that vans had uh, a lot of rollover hazards. <laughs> Very yeah. small wheels. Uh, the moment where James Earl Jones stands right in front of the, the van, <laughs> just, just stands there like, it's like, this guy has a lot of faith or has a death wish. <laughs> yeah, so really quickly, so anyways, they go to the baseball game. Uh, he gets a, a vision that says, um, oh, go the distance. Go, Sorry. The, go the distance. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, the, it's the cake song. Yeah, reluctantly crouched at the starting line. Uh, engine <laughs> pumping and thumping in time. Uh, so at the starting line. <laughs> uh, so they uh, they see a vision of Moonlight Graham, who's this who's a real person, by the way, mm-hmm. um, who did become a do- who played half an inning and did become a doctor in uh, Chaska, Minnesota, a real yep. town. Even though the the scene in that was shot in this uh, movie is not, it's a town in Indiana, I believe. But it's it's not uh, the same town. But he was a doctor for fifty years, and the idea is that he never got a chance to play in the major leagues, and they need to go there. And uh, Terrence Mann acts like he didn't see it, but then right before he's about to leave him at his apartment in Boston and go to Minnesota, um, Terrence Mann's like, "Go the distance. Who is Moonlight Graham?" <laughs> he's like, "You did see it." You motherfucker. Get in the car. We're going to Minnesota. Played by so Burt Lancaster. To... Yep. Oh, yeah. Maybe Bert the Ca- second best performance in the movie. In his final role, I think. Yeah. So they go there and they found out that Moonlight Graham, this guy, had died about 16 years before. And uh, while they're confused, again, another like big magical realism. You have to buy into it. Uh, Kevin Costner leaves and basically walks back into the 1970s before he died and has a conversation with him about what he missed out on. And it's a a fantastic performance by Burke Lancaster where he kind of talks about like, yeah, of course, at the time, as a 20-year-old, that was my dream. Yeah. But I realized that that dream was... Uh, would have kept me from having a life I was satisfied for. So when or satisfied by, and so when when Ray says, actually, you could you could finally get that fantasy. You could go and, and you know uh, wink at a major league picture pitcher and and uh, hit the bat and all that kind of stuff. Like I, I have a world where I can make that uh, I can make that wish possible. He's like, you know, that was a wish of a young person. I'm actually extremely satisfied with my life. And so he goes back and he talks to Terrence and they're like, I don't know why we're here. They get on the road back to Iowa and on the way they pick up a hitchhiker played by enemy of the show, Frank Whaley, who uh, (laughs) is clearly playing. Boo! He He is the worst performance. I fucking hate frank whaley i'm just a young baseball player uh, just looking to get a catch a ride to iowa i i hear they'll let you work <laughs> <laughs> and play some baseball yeah, he's terrible yeah. uh i mean in fairness to frank whaley he's terrible in all <laughs> yeah this isn't he's this isn't like particularly outside of his skill set so yeah I, I i have uh you know i've been saying bad things about this movie this whole time i will say 
that he sta- his performance stands out because everyone else is really good. Yeah. Uh, For what it yeah. is. <laughs> good performances. You put one Frank Whaley in there. Oh, you're against this movie. What if we throw on Frank Whaley to yeah, realize how the, much you've been ringer. enjoying it? Yeah, totally. Like, actually, I looked, it was really good before this guy came on. <laughs> Oh, yeah, now I recognize this is a masterpiece. <laughs> Hopefully they make him an old Burt Lancaster. Wait, as soon on. as Burt possible. Lancaster might have gotten to meet Frank Whaley. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. He disappears the same time Burt. Hopefully Burt Lancaster was like, this is what you call acting. You fucking make sure I never meet this yeah. goddamn kid. I'm, I'm never, I'm never going to do another movie. I'm done with cinema. <laughs> yeah. Right after this, I'm going to die. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't have to meet the next generation of Frank Whale. It was all for nothing. Yeah. If that fucking kid stars as an abusive dad in a movie called Monster Trucks about a truck that's <laughs> an actual monster, I want you to take the negative of From Here to Eternity and burn it. <laughs> Because film is dead and I want no part of it. It was a mistake. It was a mistake. Yeah. It was a mistake for me. I should have been a doctor like Moonlight Grant because this was a fucking waste of time. My Frank Whaley's going to star in a. How much is the budget of that movie? A hundred million (laughs) dollars? My the part where they go to find Moonlight Graham actually has one of my favorite details, which is uh Kevin Costner's like trying to figure out he's like, where you know, where am I? What what day is it? What's happening? And he looks at the tags on a license plate, which has gotta be the most Kevin Costner way to find out what what <laughs> is like it would never occur to me to look at a license plate, but it would occur to Kevin Costner. I thought it was great. Yeah, I mean, normally they look at a newspaper, they run into some convenience store, like, what's the year? Yeah, or like look at a newspaper, not Kevin Costner. Check the tags. Uh, I'd like uh, if instead, if he had actually been a Republican like we used to think, if he would have went and just called the police on that guy and been like, this guy's tagged. <laughs> That's the Elliot Ness route. Yeah. yeah, that is the Elliot. Yeah, he got sent uh, to Alcatraz for, for old tags. You get a fine per month. We're going to add that shit up. <laughs> You're going away for a long time. <laughs> Bootlicker. Uh, so anyway, so uh, they get back to the field. Frank Whaley just fits in right with the guys, which is fine, I guess. Um, he's all happy to be a, be a rookie on the baseball team. Meanwhile... Uh, Annie's brother's like, Selv, you're going to lose the farm tomorrow morning, Ray. And Terrence is extremely invested in him not losing the farm. It's like, it's going to be fine. Um, anyways, uh, he's actually, uh, they get there at night and he's super impressed. <laughs> Excuse me, with all the baseball playing. Um, the next day is when, I guess he's kind of writing or doing something in his journal uh, their kid, played by Gabby Hoffman, is watching the game, and when the brother-in-law, played by Tim, uh, what's his last name? It's not Conway. <laughs> if it was Conway, Gabby Hoffman would have towered over <laughs> Because I assume he would have been in his famous dwarf character. 
<laughs> Dorf on segregation baseball is my Hands favorite. Off me, of squirt. <laughs> uh, T- Timothy Busfield, apparently. <laughs> there we go. Oh, Bussy. Uh, oh, his nickname is Bussy? No. Well, T- Timothy Busfield, I assume his friends call him Old Bussy. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, a pretty bold assumption. <laughs> well, I'm never going to meet him, Rick. So we're never going to have to find out. Yeah, uh, Aaron has a, a special rule that he doesn't meet anyone that's met Frank Whaley. <laughs> that's going to be good for me in case I ever have an opportunity to meet noted swimming with sharks co-star Kevin Spacey. <laughs> oh. uh, so anyways, yeah, so... Um, old bussy it's like so he can't see any of the ghosts because he doesn't have magic in him he doesn't uh, believe in it he doesn't have he doesn't have the faith does not have the faith um and so gabby hoffman's like it'll be fine dad don't sell you'll get money and as like a, a good uncle does <laughs> yeah, but like most uncles when they have a disagreement with their sister uh, he abuses their kid. <laughs> yeah, what's with the what's with the throttling a child until she chokes on a hot dog? <laughs> I mean, I I think it's just a problem with the fact that uh, in the eighties and before you could just fucking mess up whatever kid you wanted. It didn't really. Matter. Oh yeah, you could cream kids back then. Absolutely knock them out. They would send kids, Peter. This is true, to schools about Jesus. With people that have devoted their lives to Jesus, and they would just beat the shit out of kids with sticks that are used for, in most cases, measuring things. That is why both my father and my father-in-law both harbor uh, a deep sympathy for, dash hatred for, nuns. And, like, anytime that nuns get brought up, my dad is still has some sort of, like, low-key PTSD. He's like, those fucking nuns, man. My mom tells a story that uh, the nuns had – they would uh, have them hold their hands over Bunsen burners so they would know what, yep. what hell felt like. Jesus yep. Christ. My mom used to tell a story like that as well. She was from Detroit and they – she has all these stories about them just beating the shit out of them. So, Bussy's a nun. Yeah, Bussy's a uh, nun. He's trying to, he's trying to beat, the, beat the faith of capitalism into Gabby Hoffman. <laughs> yeah. I know. I never saw fucking Whoopi, Whoopi Goldberg do that in any of those movies. But. <laughs> uh, That's thank back God in the habit. That, is. Yeah, thank God the habit she didn't get back into was abusing the shit out of children. Yeah, she's back, baby. And she's got two <laughs> rulers now. Um, <laughs> One in each hand. That should have been the, the poster. Do you think if the tagline of that movie was Who Rules, it would have been rated R? (laughs) Uh, Anyway. Uh, So, uh, yeah, no, the kid chokes, and they're like, call the police, and Kevin Costner's like, wait, which is, even if you think you have an alternate way to save your kid, it's okay to also call the paramedics. Uh, But anyway, he looks right at Frank Whaley, and Frank Whaley's like, Okay, I'll be Burt Lancaster again. Um, he walks off the field, which is the first time this happened. Right? All the all the ghosts keep going up to the field and the lines and the baselines and um, and won't go past them. And, and uh, Frank Whaley looks at it, and then when he goes over it again, he turns back into Burt Lancaster. He saves the kid. And then eventually... Uh, 
uh, Ray's like, oh, you can't go back to being young. You can't live your dream anymore. And he's like, no, this I got to do something fun. And also this reaffirms that my dream all along was to be a doctor. I had a calling to save people. I'm glad I took that route in life. So uh, at that point, um, there is a recognition from from old Bussy that, uh, oh, shit, now I can see everyone on this field finally. Don't sell this farm, Ray. Don't sell this farm. And then in the middle of that moment um, is where Terrence gives a speech that Rick – <laughs> that uh, Rick already noted, uh, which is uh, before the choking. Like it wasn't during the choking, <laughs> but uh, where where he's like, uh, people will come, Ray. People will come, Ray. Uh, back when Jim Crow was around, I was all my ancestors were big into baseball. Um, it's a bad speech. It's even worse that they make James Earl Jones say it, but he does a really good job with it. Um, I think if they if they were going for nostalgia, um, I think in a vacuum it works. Like I guess I guess in the book, J.D. Solinger probably delivered that speech. Very strange. At the very at the very least, much funnier. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, so they ask so they're about to go for the night. Shields Joe Jackson goes up goes up to Ray and Terrence and says, Hey, you wanna come with us? And Ray's all excited. He's like, I'm gonna go. And um uh Shoeless Joe with no tact whatsoever um is like, No, not you. You. Um You and, old guy. Yeah, you the guy that said you don't care about racist people. You want to come hang out with a bunch of 1920s ballplayers? <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, in in heaven? Uh, so, uh, so Terrence goes into the cornfield and disappears and says he's going to write about it and write a new book. And this is going to finally get him writing again because he gets to see what's on the other side. And uh, But Ray kind of throws a fit. He's like, I've done all... All this stuff, everything that the voice that everything that's been asked of me, and I get nothing in return. I don't even get to um, go to heaven in my thirties. <laughs> yeah, um, which is at it's like very close we, encounters where he's like, "Fuck my family, I want to go to baseball heaven." But I do like it. Something we talked about. It's a Wonderful Life is something I think about from a morality standpoint. Is like it's okay to do good things without the concept of that you'll be happy about it or be rewarded. And I think societal, the societal idea of good, do good things, get a reward stops a lot of people from doing good on their own accord. And so even though it does pivot moments later, I really like that speech that, um, uh, it's a short speech that, that, that Ray Liotta and Joe Jackson gives to him, which is like, is that why you did all these things that have like done these giant magical good things for a lot of people is so that for you personally and uh I I really like that character uh, the the way that Ray reacts which is like yeah I did like there's not a attempt to be to be a, a more of a saint than he, than he actually is like he That he feels like says, a Jimmy Stewart character we're like we don't. He's not actually an icon of perfection. He actually has his human foibles and he has yeah. his weaknesses and such. Mm-hmm. Exactly true. That idea of like where where he goes, like is that all it was? What's in it for me? And he goes, well, 
no, but I guess, yeah, I mean, what's in it for me? Um, which is uh, like such a perfect moment, I think, of of even the best of us and our best intentions always – I don't want to say always, but um, can't help but think there's something good that comes of the good that we do in the world and how important it is to still do good regardless of whether that's true or not. But moving on in this movie anyways um, – his dad walks out of the field. He was the catcher the whole time. Um, he's a younger version of of John Consala, which is his dad's name, um, and talks to him a little bit, lets him meet his family, and then uh, as they talk a little more about is this heaven, no, it's Iowa, which has been kind of a repeated line. He's about to go back into the cornfield, and finally uh, Kevin Costner uh, does what – or Ray Consala says what he's – he uh, refused to do since he was 14, which is I have a catch with his dad. Say, do you want to have a catch? They have a catch. Um, it's a great acted moment and is a moment that uh, <laughs> it's one of those moments, at least for me personally, that no matter how many times I talk myself out of like, they're just going to play catch. I'm not going to cry. Uh, I cry every single time. I almost broke out into tears just talking about it right now, just because, like, um, not necessarily the iconography is so strong, but the moment where Kevin Costner finally relents and says, "Do you want to have a catch?" and has the and and that the swelling music and the way he says it is is I think understandably a little bit. Um, Iconic and a moment that I think just gets people in a certain way. Now, um, that's essentially the end of the movie. There's a bunch of cars coming. They're going to save the farm because they're going to give twenty bucks, um, and uh, and to see to see the fake baseball players. Um, but I guess I will say, you know, we're we we've kind of done this episode a little weird. So I will just say that why this works for me um, even now, and this is. Um, not necessarily specific to my to my dad um can be to both of my parents like i i really see this as that idea of um a almost stubborn rejection of common interests that you can have with your parents because of a lot of other things that are out of alignment right or wrongly so you know, there's a lot that growing up that I could have had more in common, I think, with my parents if we didn't have all these other things that were um, stopping our uh, relationship, which is namely that, you know, it uh, that they had a level of control over my life that I was uncomfortable with and that continued longer than I was I was happy with. And, you know, it's hard to commiserate over music that you guys both like or sports that you both like or, or other things when there's this just natural thing of like, I am ready to be an adult. And your parent being like, I am not ready to not treat you like a child. And, you know, the 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 ripples from that can go on for a long time to the point that those simple moments that were really simple when you were a young kid, which is having a catch with your, you know, with your dad or going to the movies with your dad or whatever, whatever cultural moment or your, you know, 
um, you know, listening to an album that you cared about with your mom or going on a walk through a park with ducks with you, like, you know, whatever, whatever moment that, that just speaks to a time of like, this was your mom and I was, and, or this is my dad or this was my parent or whatever else it is. And I was their kid, you know, that gets harder as it goes on. And so that idea of all of those things getting in the way, rightly or wrongly, and how having a moment in your life where you can um, relive just a very innocent part of like a p- parent-child relationship, I think is why this movie still works for me from an emotional standpoint. Because I think that regardless of whether it's about baseball or anything else, that's a very common thing. Eventually, like life and parenting and teenage and hormones and and weird generational things get into the way of your relationship with your parents. And sometimes you can overcome that. Sometimes you can't. The part that wishes that things could be a little bit more simple and you could have a moment of parental child connectivity that can be harder to have as you, as you grow up. And I also think the the last thing I'll say about just why it speaks to me a little bit and why I think it resonates with me and a lot of other people is that there is there's that idea of like rejection of a common interest because it's coming from someone that you see as you know, a parent figure or someone that is not cool or someone that you are purposely don't want to have common interests or stuff like that with. So, you know, Ray, when he kind of confesses everything to Terrence, it's a lot about like, I loved baseball, but I didn't want to, but my dad loved baseball and me loving baseball in that moment was capitulating to something that I thought was, or capitulating to a person that I didn't want to have any common bonds with and I rejected all that stuff and and you know it's and later on realizing that they did share this common interest but now it was too late for them to bond over it I also think is somewhat universal and that can be universal with parents it can be universal with friends or relationships that you've had or brothers and sisters that idea of we could have let this be a bond between us, but instead, because of other things, um, I specifically rejected that as something I, I enjoyed because um, I wanted to hurt someone. Uh, so those – I mean, I think those as a whole, like – those being the themes of the movie, I think more than like why Reaganism is good, um, are, are the moments that like that generally like it spoke to me as a kid. It spoke to me as a kid, like when I was eight, because when you're eight, you want your you. I think you probably want a closer relationship with your parents that you have or you want them to stop looking at you like a kid and stuff like that. And as I've grown older and I think that my um the areas in my relationship with my parents or even my siblings for that matter, that I think there's divides. I think they're legitimate. Um, and I, I think it's, you know, whether it's political or just how you see humanity or stuff like that. Um, I think they're important, but there is always that part of you. That's like, it would be fun if we could just go and do this thing unbecomered by the last 30 years of our history. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a beautiful, it's a beautiful sentiment and like ultimately like what we're trying to get at in this month is like um 
films that uh, touch you deep down, yes, but also make you consider your relationships with those around you and how you bond with those around you and why we wanted to do this in a time where uh, I I, I think – we are all kind of craving some sort of normal human relationships and like we might be missing people that we otherwise would be seeing. Like I haven't seen my parents now in a year, which is shitty. Um, And some people, you know, will never see their parents again or see a parent of theirs again. Or, you know, as Aaron said, it extends beyond there. Like there's lots of people you love that are, you, you know, older friends or cousins or anybody that sort of builds in your perception of what your connection is to the world, right? Um, anybody that sort of anchors you to to this uh, – while I'm sad that this movie didn't give it f- – didn't perform that for me and while I have like – I have issues with how this film engage, engages with American history um, and how yeah. – and its perspective and how it views uh, counter, the countercultural movement of the 60s and going back to the Jackie Robinson era of baseball um, and everything in between – uh, I, I, by trying to own all these different eras of American history, it, it makes it sweep more epic. It it, it performs a, a reductive act, I think, on uh, the the actual people, the actual humanity within it. So, it, in some sense, it performs a sort of dehumanizing act. But in another sense, uh, when you reach the end and you're thinking like, "Shit, that person, whoever that may be, a parent, a, a whoever, that like." I, 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 you know, I, I put down my foot and uh, I didn't get a chance to or, you know, I haven't had a chance to um, reconnect with that person. And COVID times feels very appropriate that like um, we, we all we all have people probably in our lives that we, we feel like we should have made up with or we should have formed that crucial connection with. Or even if you didn't make up with that idea of like, yeah, you know, this relationship, friendship, romantic relationship, familiar relationship was ended for the right reasons. I would still like to relive this moment a little bit like that. The time doing this thing with my friend was really great. And I'd love to have that moment one more time. Yeah, because I, they, they I still think, would disagree. It sounds like his dad was, you know, a fairly conservative guy. He got mad at him for going to Berkeley and shit. Like, yeah, and I guess uh, I mean Aaron's summation was was really touching, and I don't want to stomp on it. <laughs> I think it's a really good reading. I'm glad that it uh, it affects you like that. The thing for me is that that moment ends up feeling to me really unearned because it's so one way. The notion of, uh, like, reliving this thing and coming to terms with, with the past would seem to involve some amount of accountability or some amount of two people both, you know, bringing something to the table instead of one person's renunciation of the past. When it seems like all he ever wanted to do was to be his own person and grow up, mm-hmm. Um but he was punished for that, and then he spends all this time atoning for it. I, I guess I really have a problem with that reading because I don't think that he regrets anything that happened. Like, there's not a moment of I shouldn't have moved to California. I sh- like I'm now against the '60s. I shouldn't have met my wife. I shouldn't have moved to Iowa. All the things that his father was either like clearly against or not. Like, I, I think that the 
the thing that he regrets is all the things that he still believes were the right choices for him and he's clearly satisfied with on on some level drove a wedge between their relationship, which was out of his control because that is a two-way street. Right. And I, I don't think it's a reconciliation or a penance at the end. Really? It, it feels like it is. And they, 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 they say it is. <laughs> Well, but I, but I think what he's getting are he, he doesn't say I'm sorry. He doesn't say um, no. But what is he getting? He's getting to do things that he, under better circumstances, wish he had to. He got to do, which is uh, have his wife meet his dad and have his kid meet his dad. Um, and I think even um, I think that's no matter how you get along with your parents, that's something that is easy to uh, to feel like. Oh, like, yeah, you know, this is the person who raised me. I'd like to introduce X or Y to them. And then they get to have a catch, which was the one moment when they were, when he was young, that, that they, they shared an interest and connected. Like, I think that he's expressing, like, I mean, not to get really personal, but like, you know, someday when my parents are gone, I'm still going to like, remember all the. I'm going to say, hey, I wish my kids had a better relationship with my parents. I wish I had a better relationship with the parents. Now, the reason I didn't is because they, like, have a lot of views that I feel are damaging to society and my family and other things. But I think the nostalgia for those things is still real. Like, I wish that wasn't the case. Yeah. I wish, you know, so... I I don't think it is a – if he had apologized or he regretted decisions he would make, he, he regretted they didn't have a better relationship, which I think is a fair regret even if he had good reasons or bad reasons yeah. for them not having it. Just the, it's just the vibe I pick up. And like, yeah, similarly, not to get – well – I'm gonna get. I'm, I'm gonna really get internalizing a lot of it, so I yeah. get that. Like, I have a very specific reading, and it's um, of it. But I, but I, I do think that's why I'm getting that reading. Yeah, it's okay to feel regret, even if you want change something. That's a good point. I guess I, you know, I also my my dad passed a few years ago, and I have a young daughter. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, that moment ought to lead. Um, to a recognition or, or some resonance for me in many ways, but it feels uh, untrue. There feels there's some, there seems to be something fundamentally untrue about it um, in the context, the larger context of the film, which does seem to involve a lot of renunciations of the past um, in ways that make me uncomfortable, I guess. Hmm. Um. So yeah, I mean, I I just I think it's great that it works for people. It's the I think it's great that it works for you. I just you know have a hard time getting on board the train. I mean, there's a lot watching it again for the first time in a few years. Again, I I recognize there's a lot of obstacles to getting on the train. Um, I'm not I'm not necessarily surprised rewatching it that like it didn't work for Peter seeing it for the first time. But I mean, also I also recognize that like. I have a lot of, uh, like, very specific things tied up in this movie. Like, I mean, the first time I watched this, I watched this with my parents. Sure. It's about parents. Yeah. So, like, you know, um, and maybe and maybe that is the way uh, it does it does work for me. Um, specifically, 
and uh, you know, uh, and, and clearly though, um, clearly I'm not. Uh, the only person that like has a lot of those memories tied up in this. Movie. <laughs> yeah, I definitely don't think so. <laughs> um, um, and I don't know if it's the same stuff. Like I do feel like um, one of my frustrations with the with the cultural memory of this movie is it's 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 tied into that idea of some sort of like patriarchal mas you know masculine like. Uh, guys can't actually talk about their feelings and the way they communicate is like having a catch, which I feel like is a, um, a really shitty reading of this movie. And I hate that. Like, <laughs> I hate that this movie has been like co-opted by what I imagine is the MRAs of the world is like, this is the, this is the movie that if you have a dick, your eyes can feel moisture. Because no one says I love you, <laughs> you know, and I, and I, I feel like that is such a misreading of the intention of this movie, um, and I hate that it's been co-opted in that way as like a, 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 a cool movie that dudes can cry at. Yeah. Um, I'm, I, I just think it would be very funny to see the JD Solinger. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I wonder, I wonder how they do deal with that. I don't think I want to invest the time into reading the book, but yeah, no. Uh, well, they, they, they were going to right because I mean, obviously, they left Moonlight Graham, who was a real person, and the Solinger uh, estate threatened to sue him. <laughs> that sounds about sounds about right for the Salinger estate. I actually I actually think that there's a lot to be critical of this movie on. And if I'm going to say my final thoughts, I'm actually glad like th this movie while it has a reputation that I uh that affects me that way of like uh, this what we're trying to do this month, that idea of like this movie that brings a joyful catharsis also has a problems both from a um plot perspective but but from a historical perspective brisby bear has like one giant thing you need to get on board with and then the movie will sail pretty smoothly this movie has a lot of steps throughout you need to get on board with so i also saw a lot of reviews from letterbox friends that we follow that this is like cloying bullshit and it's trying to capture that like it's a wonderful life, magical realism, but like fails completely. So I, I do, I am kind of glad that for this movie in particular, like I'm not really interested in this version of our episode with a movie like inside out, just because, I mean, if you don't like, it, you don't like it, but I, I don't think it has the plot or the, um, problematic components that this movie has, but I'm actually in retrospect, kind of glad that we got to have, a conversation because this movie is like on the one to five star continuum from our probably mutual letterbox follows. There's a lot of people that have a lot of, I think, emotions invested in what this movie is trying to do. And there's a lot of people that I think rightly have a lot of problems with uh, some of the things this movie is trying to ignore. Uh, so, Rick, thank you so much for agreeing to be in an episode that once again, I feel like I volunteered you for specifically. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I, I'm very happy. First of all, I always love having you on. Um, yes. And I hope someday we get to have a catch. Um, that would be delightful. Mainly because you're the only member of Pod's Not Dead I haven't met in person. 
Oh, yeah, that's right. Well, I, I would have yeah. to warn you, as I said earlier, I'm very bad at baseball, so that, that catch might be a disaster. But I'm game, as it were. Just stand closer. <laughs> yeah, stand as close as we want. Yeah. Anyway, so we're doing Breaks Me Bear with Brandon Lede. We're doing Hunt with the Wilder, or Hunt with the, Hunt for the Wilder people with uh, Lydia Lamalley. And then we're wrapping up the month with Inside Out with Andrew Bloom. A lot of guests. Hopefully some of them like the movies. Um, uh, is it the right time to tell you that I don't really like Inside Out? <sighs> well, I know Andrew's going to be on my side because he was very excited to, to talk about. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. I'll be I'll be the the lone dogie that month uh, or that week. Um, but yeah, Rick, thank you so much. Can you do me a favor and quickly have a kid in between? <laughs> <laughs> We're recording pretty far in advance, uh, so I don't know if that's going to be possible. Uh, Can you we- steal a newborn from a baby? <laughs> shop <laughs> all the old baby shop <laughs> but by the old I'll, baby shop it's a two for one um anyway so i guess it'll be an interesting month um and uh i've learned a valuable lesson to only recommend uh violent horror movie months with peter um good night <laughs> jesus i'm rick I'm Rick. I'm Rick. Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand. And you want to support the show. Show, we truly absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, we really do appreciate you uh, with kisses and smooches. Peter and Aaron. <laughs>